Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Bobby Friction. Now, we'd all like to believe we're fully autonomous individuals with lives, both physical and intellectual, that we've carved out for ourselves, right? Society might coalesce around certain ideas, ideologies or even brands. But me, yes, free-thinking little old me, I'm an individual and nothing can influence how I eat, work or pray. I am in control. But am I? And are we? Is there another truth? Are we mere vessels where the culture we inhabit acts as its own power and force? Is the information overload we exist in changing us in ways we don't even know? Could we be so at the mercy of this complex modern world that any marketing or data genius can predict the decisions we make on a daily basis? For example, just by looking at who we voted for. Joining me to answer how politics shapes our shopping habits is Dr. Marcus Collins, author of the book For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do and Who We Want to Be. Hi, Marcus. Welcome. How's it going? So glad to be here. So let's just jump right in. I'm a liberally minded person. What brands do you think I'd end up buying? (laughs) I think it depends on where your liberalism leans. If you're liberal about racial equality, you're probably more inclined to buy maybe black-owned brands. If you're liberally minded with regards to gender equality, you maybe buy women-owned brands. If you're liberally minded with regards to preserving the environment, then you're more likely to buy from Patagonia. The idea here is taking what might seem to be a generalist uh, belief in liberalism and making it much more specific to who we are by identity such that our behaviors, our consumption, they become byproducts of who we actually are. Now, as I've already said, you know, most of us think we're completely free. We're completely autonomous. I just want to run some little tests by you. So okay. um, just on the surface, how would, say, our political ideology, how we voted at the last election, manifest in what we buy on a day-to-day? We are a part of a complex system. And that social system is made up of people who see the world the way we do. Therefore, we're not individual agents. We are nodes within a broader context, an ecosystem. And as the sociological scholar Emil Durkheim puts it, we abide by collective effervescence, which is such a beautiful phrase. There's this idea that considering the culture that we are part of, we act in concert in an effort to promote social solidarity. So depending on my political affiliation, I consume based on what people like me do. Because culture moves forward on the basis of one simple question. Do people like me do something like this? The answer is yes, we do it. The answer is no, we don't. Therefore, because of how I see the world, my political affiliation, my ideological subscription, it is manifested in how I dress, what I drive, what I use, uh, who I marry, if I marry, uh, where I vacation, what I eat. That is, our consumption becomes an outward expression of an inward belief. These things are receipts of identity as opposed to consumption for functional use. It's not about utility. It's not about what the product is. It's about who we are. Is there something broader going on here, i.e. would a certain political leaning get you 
more inclined to buy designer goods, for example? Well, I think that it depends on what the designer goods are signifying. I, I use this example frequently in, when, when I teach at the University of Michigan, that when we look about the cultural production that we take in and the brands and branded products that we consume, they become ways by which we get a sense of what's acceptable for, for us. For instance, there's a country music song called Redneck Woman. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics one in the second verse goes, Victoria's Secret, that stuff looks nice. Well, I could buy the same thing at a Walmart shelf half price. It still looks sexy as those models on TV because I don't need no designer tags to make my man want me. <laughs> now, so you look at that and go, okay, what's the point of that? What she's saying, Gretchen Wilson, the the the, the singer, the artist, she says, I'm a redneck woman. I am, I am a high-class broad. I'm a product of my raisin. I say, hey, y'all and yeehaw. So by communicating her identity, I'm a redneck woman, she's also saying, listen, we don't shop at Victoria's Secret. We shop at Walmart because that is a signal, it's a sign of savviness, that we value fiscal financial savviness. Therefore, Redneck women are not inclined to buy more luxury products when it comes to undergarments. Wow. Unbelievable. Take that with another culture like hip hop. The more luxurious the products are, the greater they are as signifying who you are, the more likely they are to help you achieve the strategies that are manifested in our identity projects. So whether we buy high priced, whether we buy luxury, whether we buy more value-based things as far as price value, those things are all subject to how we self-identify in the communities that we are a part of, which is unbelievably powerful. Nothing to do with the value propositions, nothing to do with the, the intrinsic value of these products, but everything to do with the way that we frame them. So it's all about power, and power obviously makes uh, the world go round, as do these corporations. So what's happening in those marketing offices of those corporations? What are they doing with this knowledge when they market to us? So I'd arguably say not much, or at least not enough. What I realized in my career as a marketer, as an advertiser, is that we talk a lot about culture. We need to get our ideas out in the culture, what's happening in culture, 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 culture. But if you asked five people, five marketers in particular, to define culture, you get 55 different answers. And that's a problem. Because if we don't have the language to describe a thing, we can never fully harness its power. And culture is the most influential external force on human behavior. So to not tap into that, For a marketer whose job it is to get people to adopt behavior, that is a huge, huge miss. And unfortunately, in these corporations, Fortune 500, blue chip brands, we don't think a lot about what culture really is. We use culture as a shortcut for popularity. But those two things are not analogous. Culture, as the scholars, uh, especially the founding fathers of sociology, Mill Durkheim in particular, he talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what's acceptable and expected behavior of people like us. And we are so woefully understood of what these things are that as practitioners, we never fully are able to harness that very power that you're talking about, Bobby. So you you mentioned that not enough's being done within these corporations, but there are people out there who are probably reading your book, realizing that you are one of the leading scholars on this kind of stuff. Are there any examples of corporations actually being successful in using the culture uh, to make us buy more products? 
oh, oh, for sure. I probably start with Nike. We know them as a sneaker company, but that is a gross under-exaggeration of what Nike really is. Nike is governed by a belief. Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. Big, small, short, tall, able, unable, we're all athletes. And the only thing keeping us from realizing our best athletic self is ourself. So what does Nike tell the world? Just do it. And Nike doesn't talk to everybody with feet. No, no. Nike talks to the inner athlete in us. Nike talks to athletes by paying homage and honor to the greatest athletes ever. She talked to swimmers one way, footballers another way, runners another way, hoopers another way, all under an ideological premise that every human body is an athlete. And those who see the world similarly, they consume accordingly. And there is a reverberation, a ripple effect, a propagation in the broader uh, society that even if you are an athlete, you consider Nike to be cool. Because of its stronghold within the culture of runners, footballers, and the like, uh, who have status within, within our society. The same thing goes in politics. I would arguably say that the Republican Party, the GOP here in the States, they are a terribly effective brand hmm. in that they preach a gospel about a point of view. I mean, we go back to, to Trumpism, right? Trump doesn't talk about legislation ideas. Trump doesn't talk about ideas to move the country forward as far as governance. Trump talks about a point of view about the world. Make America great again. And the people who see the world similarly go, finally, someone said it. He, he's saying a thing that I've been saying at the kitchen table for years. That's my guy. And whatever Trump tells them to do, they do. And we see it manifest within consumption as well. I mean, you saw a population of people who decided not to wear a mask, that is, decided not to consume mm. during the pandemic because of the gospel that was being preached to them. So we see this with regards to consumption with a brand like Nike. We see it with regards to politics, the brand like the GOP, particularly Donald Trump. But then get, get, get something that's even in the middle and take a brand like Patagonia. Patagonia believes in climbing clean. Just, just very quickly, because uh, us here in Britain might not know Patagonia. What is the brand? Ah, so Patagonia is an outdoor retailer, like mountain climbing. And it was started by a guy named Yvonne Chouinard, uh, who was an outdoor enthusiast, particularly rock climbing. And he would climb rocks and he realized the, the gear he was using to climb the rocks were quite invasive on the rocks he was climbing. And he thought that this isn't good for the planet. So he made different gear, different like materials for people to climb up rocks to make it less invasive. But why he did it, because he believed in climbing clean, reducing our invasiveness on the planet. And because of that belief system, everything Patagonia does is in relationship to that ideology. So much so that Patagonia actually sued the country under Trump's administration because they were infringing on what was supposed to be sacred land. They said, oh, that's not cool. We're going to sue the country. Wow. Black Friday here in the States uh, some years ago, they had a massive campaign where they told the country, hey, don't buy this jacket. It's a new jacket that we made, but please do not buy it. Why? They said, don't buy this jacket because the jacket you have at home is just fine. And guess what? You know what? We're creating a new service 
that will repair your old jackets for free. Even if your jacket isn't a Patagonia jacket, and if it's unrepaired, we'll give you credit to buy a jacket in the store. But please, please, please do not buy this jacket. Everything that Patagonia has done almost seems to be counterintuitive to how you grow a business, how you make money. But they're not driven by what they do. They are informed by why they do it. And they make political statements in an effort to materialize or to tangibilize their point of view. And somehow or another, and I say that uh, 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 in jest, their business continues to grow. So great examples, Nike, the Republican Party, even doing something like suing the government that eventually becomes part of your brand, right? Um, are there examples where it's all backfired or where a brand has just got the culture around its offering wrong? What I would say is that what goes wrong isn't about identifying a community who share the same cultural characteristics and operating accordingly. That's not where it goes wrong. Where it goes wrong is when you're not committed to that ideology. Bud Light is a great example of this. So I've worked on Bud Light for years. I did marriage equality work for Bud Light back in 2012, 2013. And for decades, Bud Light has been or had been committed to serving the LGBTQ plus community. So when Bud Light famously did the influencer partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, the trans influencer, when I saw it, I went, oh, of course Bud Light would do this because Bud Light has been doing this for decades. But then when the opposition pushed against Bud Light, instead of Bud Light standing on its beliefs that this community matters, instead of Bud Light saying, hey, Kid Rock, it's funny that you're shooting at cans of Bud Light, where we have pictures of you drinking Bud Light with a drag queen. That's odd. Even though they had tons of receipts for this, Bud Light flinched. Bud Light said, sorry if we offended you. We don't want to offend anyone. We're just a beer that's meant for good times. So the LGBTQ plus community that they have been supporting for decades said, what about us? They completely alienated a community that they had, quote unquote, been supporting and lost them that quickly. And as a result, not only did the, the bullies that were in opposition of Bud Light uh, turn on them, but the community, the LGBTQ plus community that they had been supporting said, we're done with you, Bud Light. And now all you're left with, with the people in the middle who said, I don't want any of this smoke. I don't want to be a part of none of this. I'm going to just drink a, a Modelo instead. And as a result, sales tank for Bud Light. Okay, uh, just another perspective, Marcus. You know, um, ultimately, these are all brands. They're all businesses. We're talking free markets here. We're talking capitalism here. Isn't all of this just more and more intricate and complicated ways to just sell product? Sure. I think that, you know, in a capitalist society, consumption drives the ethos of how we perceive the world and how we engage in it. I think what's important to note is that you can do good and do good business. The evidence suggests that the companies who do good actually do better business. 
So even if you look at this through just sheer capitalistic lenses, it says, hey, when you focus on something beyond the value propositions, there's actually a commercial benefit to that. So you should do that. Our traditional means of thinking about going to market is that we focus on the value propositions of the products and we find product market fit based on those value propositions. My razor are sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, my shampoo will get you laid, I suppose. Right? And <laughs> Give me that shampoo. If we at, and if we were just focused only on product benefits, it would be a bloodbath in almost every single industry considering just how much parity there is in almost every single industry, right? My, my battery lasts... Two percent longer than the than a competitor. Okay, great. What's that? Three more minutes? Like it's parity. But we know as marketers that when brands transcend the value propositions and they emote, that people are more inclined to consume and more inclined to be loyal because they align their identity to these things that we feel. Brands, at their core, are vessels of meaning, and we construct reframe, refashion those meanings as a way to signify our own meanings. Now, here's the good part. Brands who see the world in a way that is productive for community, you inherently activate communities to not only consume from you, but to evangelize for you. And if your belief system is salient within yourself, but there are only a few people who see the world like you, then the market opportunity is smaller, right? So as a politician, if you see the world in a very myopic way, right? Like go back to Ron DeSantis, <laughs> like if your whole uh, uh, your whole legislative idea, your whole ethos is about battling uh, uh, and oppressing the LGBTQ plus community, well, guess what? There's not that many people relative to the population of the country who hold those views. But the wider or the, the, the more galvanizing your point of view is for a greater community of people, then more people are willing to subscribe, i.e. make America great again, i.e. hope with Barack Obama. At its core, though, these principles are value neutral and can be used as a way to not only make money get votes, get downloads and the like, but also make society better. And just to underscore that last little bit, mm. Patagonia a year ago, a year or some change ago, the founder, the founder, you know, Yvonne Schnard and his family gave away their company. Wow. They gave it to a trust because they said, hey, look, you know, we made a lot of money, which is great in the company, you know, billion dollar plus company. And that's reactive. So they gave the company away to a trust to nonprofits who are committed to minimalizing our invasiveness on the planet. They do good in business, but they also do good for society. And these are the brands that we look at and say, yes, thank you more, please. Okay, I need to ask this. Let's pivot away from the abstract and go back to these humans. Me, you, um, anyone who's listening right now, should we not be worried with this? It's almost like an algorithm that, knows us better than we know ourselves. This knowledge in the hands of large corporations, bigger than 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 some countries, uh, this knowledge in the hands of political movements and parties, or even non-state actors who might want to do harm to a group, should we not be worried 
in a future when all of these different organizations get the algorithm and get the hack and then use it against us? We should be. You know, um, and I, I tried to make this, uh, this cautionary remark in the book <clears throat> that what we're talking about here is just, it is the nature of humanity, right? It's just the underlying physics of humanity. It is value neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. But to your point, in the hands of bad actors, it becomes extremely dangerous. You know, the literature tells us that this is the same way that ISIS are able to recruit uh, and radicalize people. Right? They do it by ideology. They, they preach a gospel. No one joins a cult. <laughs> like, I'm joining this cult right now. No, no, no. They join a group of people who see the world similarly. Before you know it, you're in a cult. Before you know it, you're in a radical social group. Uh, which means then there requires great, great, great responsibility as we have more information, as we know each other more. And the hope is that not only are we empowering practitioners through the knowledge that's been acquired, but also we are helping the greater society be, be more knowledgeable about it, be more intentional, that when they see an ad, when they see a political statement, they can be more critical and go, what are they trying to communicate to me here? That they're able, they are empowered, they have agency now uh, to mute the violence from those uh, bad actors who use this knowledge uh, to achieve catastrophic outcomes. Well, I, I know you've hit my sweet spot because my brain's absolutely fizzing with possibility right now. Dr. Marcus Collins, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, including your episodes ad-free and other goodies too. I'm Bobby Friction. Thank you so much for listening. The Bunker was presented by Bobby Friction and produced by Kasia Tomashevich with assistant production from me, Adam Wright. The audio editor was Robin Leeburn with art by Jim Parrott and music from Kenny Dickinson. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.